In our culture, we learn through stories. But what if the stories we hear don't match the reality of life? What if the stories we hear every day that tell us how to write the narrative of our lives actually lead us to a false narrative? My name is Tim Kroll, and on this podcast, you will hear real stories, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Real people sharing the hard times, the bends in the roads along life's journey. If you're ready to join a community of other real people who are writing the narrative of their lives, then go to narrative.live and join the community. Now let's dive into today's show. Hey, welcome back. Once again, I am with Chase. Now, Chase and I met years and years and years ago through Ecom. We were uh, working on some stuff through Sunfrog and then Golly, I think our relationship has just kind of developed over the years now. It's been 10 years, I think, that I've known either you or about you. Or It's got to be closer to 12. Yeah, I think it's 12. It might yeah. be closer to 12. It's been a long time. I've been um, online I'm, I'm now grateful. for 16 years. So yeah, I'm, I'm really yeah. super grateful because Definitely. I have watched you mature. I've watched things happen. And to be honest, I'm really excited to hear some of the backgrounds of how all of these things have happened. This story that you are now crafting and creating in your life is, is really inspirational. So I'm thankful and thanks for being here today. No problem. Thanks for having so, me. So let's jump in right away. There's a lot to share with the question that we ask everybody. What were the beliefs? What was the formation of your ideology as you were just about ready to step into adulthood? I mean, what were some of the things that, that influenced that? What created those belief systems? Where were you at as a child just before stepping into adulthood? Sure. So I grew up extremely, extremely poor. I grew up in a little bitty, like 300 square foot house. It might, might have been 400 total. There was a giant hole right in front of the sink. I can remember walking in on my mom washing dishes and she would actually have to straddle hmm. the hole. And I could actually see through the hole, mice and all kinds of stuff just running around. You could literally see the ground. And I heard a lot of, you know, I want, like I wanted this, but then I heard a lot of, oh, no, we can't afford that. Oh, no, we can't afford that. No, we don't have enough money. I heard that constantly. And so as a kid, when you hear, oh, we don't have enough money, it reinforces within you and you think, okay, well, I guess I just need more money, <laughs> right? Yeah. So money was always my driving force in a way that I knew I needed more of. My dad was a you know a metal shop guy. He was a welder. He didn't go to college, so he had just a, a very basic job at that point, just welding. But I mean, I watched him work his tail off on a consistent basis every single day, day in and day out. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, so that's part of the reason why we were extremely poor, you know, because mom wasn't working and dad was pretty much just bringing home whatever he could. But, you know, it, it was good. I was raised an only child, and, uh, you know, later on, about four or five, we actually adopted my brother, who was actually my cousin at the time, long story. And uh, he was actually a, a black kid. And what was interesting about that was, number one, you know, he was the only black kid in the entire school. So yeah. it was very, very interesting to see how people related to, you know, black people in that in that day and age. You know, it, it was... How did, that, how did that actually impact you, though? Like, so... I mean, that's a big deal. I mean, your yeah. brother who is black, which is, I think, in an awesome statement just for your family and the acceptance and, you know, the non-racial issues that are there. But then just seeing how everybody, I mean, he, he's basically like, I mean, I, I don't know how close you were, but I'm assuming you guys are pretty close as brothers. Oh, extremely close. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so how did that impact you with the, your view on other people? 
So it really made me view other people because, I mean, I have all kinds of ethnicities. I have Puerto Rican, Mexican. I have all those ethnicities, you know, in, in my family line. And so I never had even a chance to be racist. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I saw the racism from other people, but I never even thought about it. You know, that was my brother. That was it. And so seeing people treat him differently definitely made me reinforce my beliefs that I was the right, you know, I had the right thoughts in, in that aspect and they did not. And so I just really learned to appreciate people just as a whole early on, just simply because they they don't get the choice of how they're born, you know, and actually funny enough, you know, my brother, because, you know, because we got him, part of the reason why that was, was because his mother had a boyfriend at the time that was racist and didn't want anything to do with him. Mm. And, you know, my dad actually tells the story about how when he got my brother in the first place, he actually pulled him out of a trash heap in the living room. He was literally in the living room, just surrounded by trash. And my dad picked him up. And that was the first experience that he had with him. So, I mean, that that's very, you know, specific, obviously, but it, it just goes to show you that, you know, kids are just so precious, you know, I mean, it, it's just crazy. So, you know, I had him as my brother. Amazing, amazing time. You know, um, everybody loved him at the school for the most part. I mean, there was a couple people that didn't, but I mean, it is what it is. But most of the people just absolutely loved him. He loved being the only black kid in the school. <laughs> absolutely loved it. You know, he just embraced it. Super happy. You know, he was just that kind of guy. We had him for about seven or eight years. And then um, his mom decided actually she wanted him back. And so she went through the court system. And, you know, basically won the court battle. And, you know, after eight years of us having him and taking care of him, she won the court battle. But she said that we would still get to have him on the weekends. Everything was okay. I was a little sad, obviously, because it was all the time. And then now I only get weekends. So I remember it like it was yesterday. And we went up to get him on the weekend. And we go in, like, to where the house is. And we knock on the door. Nobody answers. We go around the corner. There's no dogs barking. They had like five dogs, you know, so there's no dogs barking. I'm like, this is kind of strange, you know, because normally the dogs are just going haywire. And so I go and look through like the little little part in the window and I look in and there's nothing in the rooms. And I'm like, what's going on here? You know, I mean, it just. I, well, I what age were you at that time? Like, so if you, I mean, you got him at five, right? So you, you add eight years. So that puts you at 12, 13. Yeah, I would have been 11, 12, somewhere around right. in there. Yeah. So you and, kind of understand a little bit of life, but it's 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 still confusing, I'm sure. Super confusing. And this made it even more confusing because, you know, when when we actually came to figure out everything, they moved away from us, like to another state. They they moved to Lansing, Michigan, you know, and mm -hmm. we're in the heart of Missouri. So, you know, and we didn't know that. They didn't tell us anything. They just won the court battle that day. They moved out and moved to Michigan. And so here I am. I'm like, what's going on? My brother's just gone. And I'm like, what's going on here? You know, like I was just shattered at that point. Cause I was like, I was an only child. That was cool. But then having a brother was way cooler. You know, I mean, we, we did everything together. So a deep sense of loss there. Massive, massive, you know, just complete and total loss. 
you know, I mean, it, it took me a long time to get over that. I mean, I can remember crying for, you know, long, long time, especially since I didn't even know where they were. They wouldn't answer phone calls, you know, for like three or four years. We didn't even know where they were at all. And it was, it was very disturbing. So after that, my, uh, my dad and my mom were actually supposed to divorce. I didn't know this at the time, but they were supposed to divorce. So I go through, you know, go through life and I'm thinking everything's all normal. And then all of a sudden my mom's best friend is actually moving in. So I'm like, why is my mom's best friend moving in? You know, like this is our family. Like it didn't make any sense to me. I liked her. She was cool, but I, I didn't understand why she was moving in. So she moves in and then, you know, I didn't know this, but when she moved in, my dad was supposed to move out. And she moves in and she gets diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and cancer at the same time, hmm. given three to four months to live. And so my dad actually, you know, he's, he's very close to God. He's a lot closer to God now, but he believed that God was telling him to take care of her. And that was very strange for me because, you know, he, and then later on, I found out that my dad and my mom was actually supposed to split up. And so it was very strange for me. Like, why is this woman here? You know, why is this happening? Why does my dad think he needs to take care of her? None of it made sense, right? None of it made sense. My brother was still gone. So I had nobody to talk to about it. You know, it, it was very confusing. So over time, as you know, when, when you spend a lot of time with people, you know, you start to become attracted. You start to, you know, attraction starts, especially if you're, you're thinking your marriage is already over, you know, there's an attraction that starts. And so they, I noticed they started doing a lot of things together. And then I noticed that they were starting to kind of form more of a bond than he even had with my mom at that time. And so I thought that it was very strange, but my mom really noticed it. And my mom actually went into a, a little bit of a depression, you know, like she would come home at this time, she was actually working, but she would come home and she would just go to her bedroom and not come out, you know, like wouldn't have nothing to do with us. You know, she was just not just in, gone. Yeah. She was just not there. She, and she still was holding on that her marriage was going to be okay. You know? So anyway, there was one day that I, I went and I saw them actually doing some things that were affectionate. They weren't having sex, obviously. I didn't see anything crazy like that. But, you know, they were doing some things that I knew that he should have been doing with some, you know, he should have been doing it with my mom, you know. And my mom and dad weren't actually affectionate in front of me at all. You know, mm. they never kissed or, or anything like that in front of me, hardly at all. So I never really saw that side of my, my dad and mom. And so when I saw that, I went out to my, my dad's truck and I pulled the number one dad keychain off of his keychain that I had given him like two or three years prior. And I threw it down on the ground and my dad comes out and he says, what are you doing? You know, cause I slammed the door and I said, either you tell mom or I'm going to tell mom, you know? And at that point he saw the number one dad keychain there. He picked it up, put it in his pocket. You know, he knew what was going on. So he tells my mom, me and my mom move out. I don't see my dad for like two years. Right. So that's another loss. Massive. Another relational loss. The, the loss. I mean, if you really want to talk about the loss, that was it. Because my dad and me were inseparable. I mean, right. one, of the, one of the greatest dads, you know, to this day. But through that process, you know, not seeing him for two years, I started to get, you know, didn't have my brother. So I started to smoke weed. 
And 13, 14 years old, started to smoke weed on a pretty consistent basis. I'm honestly not not even sure how I hid it from my mom. <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, I was, I was young, but yeah. I was still able to somehow hide it from my mom. I would like go for a walk or, you know, go to a friend's house that was local, you know, and, and I was getting high on a very consistent basis. And it, it was my my medication, realistically, you know. Well, I, and you had told me earlier off screen that this was really the way that you used to escape. Yeah. Escape the pain, escape the loss, escape all of those things. And so, you know, as we look at this, it sounds like, I mean, that's the the formative, the first formative kind of situations were just all of the fact that I'm alone and that I have all of the loss of what's going on between my brother and my dad. And then you have to move out. And then money is just like, we have to consider that the God. Like, let's fast forward through this whole process because I know that the, the drugs started really impacting. As we fast forward, what was the the life like at that point in time while you were on the drugs and then what really kicked you out of that drug state really? Yeah. So for, for me, I always say that weed is one of those things that makes you happy with the worst day of your life. And, you know, that's really how I, I look at it because the truth of the matter is, is if you're a weed smoker, it doesn't matter if you're getting off the couch. It doesn't matter if you're just playing video games. The worst day of your life is the best day of your life on weed. That's just how it is. You know, and so it was able to give me that medication. Well, after two years, I started to get back with my dad, started to hang out with him again, you know, and start to kind of rebuild that bond. At this point, my dad actually had read like crazy amounts of the Bible. He said that he cried every day for those two years, you know, and, and it was a very emotional time for him because in his mind, he lost his family, you know, right. and in my mind, I didn't want nothing to do with him at that time. You know, I got to 16 years old, 17 years old, and then I, I kept smoking weed. I, I started doing mushrooms, acid, ecstasy, you know, you name it. Well, when I got out of school, I actually started to get hooked on meth. That was whenever I first started the whole meth scene. And that was an interesting one for me because I went from the downer, you know, that I enjoyed, which was the, the weed, but then I was like, what's this meth all about? You know what I mean? Once I tried meth, I was hooked. I mean, it's just like what people say. You try it one time and you are absolutely hooked. And that's what I was. Now, I never took the needle, but my favorite thing was the, the pipe, right? Mm. So we would smoke it. I mean, we, we would smoke meth all the time. And at first it was just kind of here and there, you know, just kind of playing around. And then I got a job out of high school where I was working 84 hours a week. And this job was second shift. So it was 3.30 in the afternoon to four o'clock in the morning. And um, I actually started this towards the end of my senior year because I actually left early. So that was a little bit tough. But this job just fueled my drug use because at, at this point, you know, with a 3.30 to four o'clock in the morning job, the only thing you're going to be able to do is meth. <laughs> I mean, you know, because you're, you're just constantly working. I mean, the way that it worked was you work 21 days straight and you got a day off. 21 days straight, you got a day off. And so, you know, it, it was very physically demanding. You know, it just, it just made me do way more drugs than I probably ever should have. Mm. From that, though, I started selling drugs as well. You know, and for a while I was selling meth and I was selling coke and I was selling weed 
you know, some ecstasy. I actually call them my survival packs. And so like whenever I would talk to my guy on the phone, I would say, hey, I need a new survival pack. A survival pack was two pounds of weed, a pack of 40 uh, ecstasy pills, an ounce of Coke or an ounce of dope. That was what my survival pack was. And that was how I kind of got by. I started selling. Um, I was really good at it, you know, probably should have been a lot worse at it. And I probably would have did it for less time. But after three years, I decided to, uh, you know, I missed a few days, right? I think it was like six or seven days in total that I missed over a three-year period, you know, and that was just call-ins. And I mean, I was just exhausted, you know, like it was either a come down or I just didn't want to go, you know, but I didn't think six days was that many in three years, to be honest, especially when I'm working 21 days straight. But so from that, I decided, screw these guys, I'm going to take unemployment, right? So I said, I worked for y'all for three years. Y'all have beat me to death. I'm done with y'all. I'm going to sell drugs and I'm going to take unemployment. So I started taking unemployment. I had nine months, I think it was like $1,800 or something like that a month that I could pull and then, of course, the drugs also, you know, help supplement that income. What they don't tell you, though, whenever you get into drugs is that you can't spend this money that you get. You may get a lot of money, but you can't spend it, right? You can't say, hey, I got this money and I'm going to go buy this car with it. You can't do that. So, you know, that was one thing, a little bit of a realization that I had to come to. So anyway, there was one day I moved out of the house that I was in and I met my ex I didn't know she was going to be my ex at the time, but I met this girl that I didn't even know, but I went to her house. My, my house actually just got sprayed for brown recluses and we were literally catching 20 to 30 brown recluses in a glue trap. Ugh. I mean, it was so many brown recluses. It was crazy. And I said, there's no way I'm going to stay in this. You know, I'm out of here. So I went to a buddy's house and I met Tanya and I said, yo, I know you have a house that you, you live in by yourself. Can I rent a room? And she was like, she was like, well, it's like, I know you do that stuff. And that wasn't what she said. I'm paraphrasing obviously, but, and she says, you're not allowed to do it at my house. I said, Hmm, that could work. <laughs> right. I said, well, that might make me do this less. That could work. So I moved in with her. I somewhat quit. I didn't actually quit at that time. But, you know, because at that time I was doing half gram to a gram a day, you know, I mean, and, and that's for, for layman's terms, you know, that's 50 to $100 a day in methamphetamine. Mm. That's a lot, right? You know how it is when you live with somebody, feelings start happening. And pretty soon she was coming into my room in the mornings and things were going down. And she was just a roommate at the time, but she ended up getting pregnant. So me wanting to do the right thing, right? I decided let's start a relationship. And then we started a relationship that was working pretty good. And then I asked her to marry me. Well, when she got pregnant, I was an addict, right? A complete addict. I had taken nine months of unemployment and I was trying to get a job and nobody would hire me. And they're like, what have you been doing for the last nine months? Obviously, you can't say, oh, well, you know, I was uh, selling drugs and taking unemployment. No employer wants to hear that, <laughs> right? So, you know, that that's basically what I had to say, though, because I didn't have anything else to say. So when Skylar was on the way, my son, I decided, okay, it's time to 
you know, become a businessman because this is not working for me. So is that the transition into where you're at now? That was the time, that was the wake up call. Like, hey, my kid is on the way. I've got to straighten up my life. Absolutely. I mean, I just took a survey, right? And I was like, last nine months, I've done nothing but sell drugs and do drugs, right? And, And take money from these people that I used to work for. And I said, I'm not fit to be a father. You know, it was completely out of left field. Completely. But one of the key elements, I think, and just to kind of finalize on that, the key element, yeah. the reason for the drugs was the escape. After all yeah. of that loss that you've gone through, the, the belief was the only way to get away from that is to escape it. Yeah, 100%. And I so mean, now all of a sudden you get the slap in the face, this wake up call of yeah. now I've got a kid. So now what? Right. I said, I took stock of my life and I said, if I was my kid, would I be proud of my dad? Mm. And I said, no, (laughs) absolutely (laughs) not. You know, so, and I wanted him to be proud of me. And so, you know, I I went through that process of quitting completely and totally cold turkey. And that was a seven-year drug habit, right? Mm -hmm. Well, seven-year meth habit. It, It had been, you know, even earlier than that or even longer than that with everything else. So about 23, I think it was about 23 when he was on his way, you know, Cold turkey was the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life. Yeah, it's pretty rare for people to quit cold turkey. It was God. It was God. The only thing that I can even equate to why I was able to do it was God. Because had I not had God, there's no way I would have been able to do it. And the truth of the matter is when you want to quit drugs, you can want it all you, all you, you know, I mean, you can want it as bad as you think you want it. But in the truth of the matter is, if you don't have something to rely on during that time, you're never going to do it. Mm -hmm. You're never going to do it. And so, you know, I can remember waking up twitching, you know, my whole neck just twitching like this. I can remember, you know, watching the show Breaking Bad and having to turn my head whenever they, because I don't know if you've seen that show, but I mean, they literally smoke bubbles, you know, which is what I smoked on that show. And I mean, even seven years into being off of it, I still could not watch that show in certain parts just because it was so overwhelming. Yeah. And and I just had to excommunicate from everybody, you know, that tried to take me back to that place. And that's, that's one of the biggest things that I learned is that excommunication from the people that wanted to bring you back there because misery loves company, you know? And, you know, thank God now I'm 16 years. But the the great part for me is that my son's almost 15, maybe 15 next month. And so now I can gauge how long I've been clean, right? Based off of his age. And I think that that that's a very powerful reminder that keeps me going, you know, every single day that lets me know that, yo, this is the thing, the being that completely revolutionized your entire life. So Skylar was on his way. Um, I decided to start a carpet cleaning company. That was whenever I started to dive into the internet marketing space because now I have a fiance. She wants a big wedding. My family is massive. My family side alone was 150 people. The whole thing was like 250 plus that we were going to have to have at our wedding just to keep everybody happy, right? And I barely had any income, like hardly at all. You know, we were at that point, we were living off of her income, which was not very much. It was a server income. So 
I decided I was going to be a businessman, started a carpet cleaning company. I was a third generation carpet cleaner, by the way. I didn't really talk about that, but um, I watched my mom and my grandpa do the carpet cleaning thing. And so I learned business from them, really mm. watching them sell to people and stuff like that. So anyway, third generation carpet cleaner. I'm like, okay, let's go get grandpa's old equipment. I went and bought his equipment from him for 1500 bucks, started my own carpet cleaning company, and then just went from there, right? And so I realized real quick after handing out 30,000 flyers, right, that I wasn't going to be able to make a business handing out flyers. <laughs> now, it sounds great beating feet, right? It sounds great. But after handing out 30,000 flyers, we got like nine jobs, right? Not, not a great conversion rate. <laughs> not a great conversion rate at all. So, um, you know, we, we went through that process and I was like, this is not working. So then I decided to learn internet marketing. And so then I started teaching myself Facebook. And at this time, Facebook was, you know, only local, basically. I mean, yeah. that was really it. There was really nothing else to it. There, that was like it. It was just like one type of ad and, you know, a few little pieces where you could put a little bit of copy and that was it. Because I was one of the original beta testers of the Facebook ads platform when it first came out. And so... I was like, okay, this is kind of cool, you know. And then over time, I, I taught myself how to how to run Facebook ads, basically just buying a course here, buying a course there, shiny object syndrome, you know, just buying yeah. as much information as I could. I think I spent like one hundred and fifty thousand dollars over the first seven years of my career. So then, back to back, after the carpet cleaning company, my internet stuff started taking off. But it took seven years of back to back failure. Before I ever made one dollar on the internet, mm. seven years, and honestly, I, I think about it now. I'm like, I've never done anything and failed for seven years and continued. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but I just knew, I knew because the internet was really starting to take off at that time, and I knew something was there. And so, me and my my uh, baby's mama, now, you know, she would always get on to me because she's like, "What are you doing?" She's like. Skylar wants to play, you know, all this kind of stuff. I'm like, I'm trying to make a business here. And so I was working as much as I could on the carpet cleaning company, as much as I could on internet marketing. And then for a while, I also had a mobile company that we did mobile apps and websites. I was exhausted, right? I can remember sleeping on my computer on multiple occasions just because I was trying to figure everything out. And so I finally got the internet stuff to work. And then I brought my brother back at this time. We, we did find out where he was. And, and then he ended up coming back to live with us for a little while um, earlier. But then he moved to Georgia. And then I brought him back from Georgia and gave him my carpet cleaning company, right? I just said, here it is, run it. He had a little bit of experience as well. Here you go, run it. So then I started on the internet marketing journey, right? And then we started to do the t-shirt thing. And the t-shirt thing took off. As you know, this is where I met you. You know, the t-shirt thing was amazing back in the day. I mean, we started a page called Duck Dynasty Fans Only. And I can remember our first shirt. It was uh, Duckaholic Hooked on Quack, right? <laughs> and it was, it was kind of funny because obviously my background and all that. But um, that was the first shirt that we sold. We sold like 50 hoodies, I think it was, or 50 t-shirts. <laughs> uh, just based on building. This was before Duck Dynasty was in every Walmart, right? And so we just sold it that that uh, shirt 
and it crushed. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. So then I dove head first into the whole t-shirt stuff. And we started to just sell all kinds of hoodies. In one design, we sold 50,000 hoodies. I mean, it was just insane. So then from that, I started to work with my partner, Bill. And Bill was, uh, he was amazing. I mean, we worked together for like three years, made millions and millions of dollars together. And then this leads to my next turning point, right? So this is, uh, this is basically, I mean, I, I call him like my brother, you know, like he was, he was almost a father figure to me and another father figure to me, you know, because he was just, we just worked together so well, you know, he was an old Marine guy or, or Navy guy. And, you know, he was real hardcore, uh, you know, when it came to like work, just worked constantly. He was very motivating for me. So we started to have some trouble in the business. And so I, I actually went and got a loan in my name. It was like a $16,000 loan. And so I got this loan, you know, we had built the company and then we got the loan. Long story short, before the first payment came through, which was 2,500 bucks on the loan, the loan came back. They told me that it had been, it had bounced. And I was like, insufficient funds, you know, how is that possible? So then I tried to call him, didn't answer, tried to find him on Skype, wasn't there. Tried to find him on Facebook, wasn't there. And he had blocked me on all methods of communication. And this was probably one of the only times in my entire life where my son actually saw me cry. And it was painful, man, because, you know, you felt that loss again. Yeah. Again, it's just like another loss. I'm like, yeah. I, I, I thought we were going to make million. I mean, we did make millions together. You know, I mean, I went from $25,000 a month to now $2,500 a month. I started working with my dad at the metal shop and I would get up at 2.50 a.m. to get on the floor by four, you know, in order to work for 10 or 12 hours in a day. And I told myself, I'm like, I'm never going back to internet marketing, never. And God in the back of my mind says, you will go back to internet marketing if this specific person asks you. And I'm like, okay, well, that's never going to happen. So that's fine, right? No worries. So I start working out there. Um, it's, it's funny because my son actually told me one night, he put me to bed. He's like, dad, it's almost your bedtime. You know, and he's like eight, nine years old, right? So like him telling me I needed to go to bed was like painful for me, right? Because I was going to bed at like 7.30. So from that, I knew that that, that person was never going to ask me. So I wasn't worried. And nine months later, that exact person that I never even spoke to on the phone texts me on Facebook and says, hey, I need you to come be the director of marketing of my company. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. And uh, I said, I have to pray about it, you know, because I always pray about any opportunity. So I prayed about it, didn't get the confirmation I needed, told him no. And then he came back a month later, doubled his original offer, and then now I prayed about it again and I did get the confirmation this time. So I started that. And then after that, it just blossomed into something just crazy. You know, I worked for, uh, I mean, I built that agency to an exit, you know, in the first 10 months. We went from six employees to 40 employees within the first 10 months. It was, it was absolutely insane. I guess the next turning point, but later on, there was a situation where my partner, my ex-partner, the one that ripped me off, actually lost his daughter. And he lost his daughter to a heroin overdose. 
So I, at, the, at first I was like, oh, this was karma. You know, he ripped me off. I, I was not really feeling the emotion. And my mom told me, he says, Chase, no one deserves to lose a kid. No one. This is not karma. This is just, you know, a situation that's awful. She says, text him and tell him that you're praying for him. At first, I was like, no, not going to do it. So then I did text him, told him I was praying for him. We got on a call. He handled the last of the, the payment that we had together. And then we actually ended up building another company after that, that went to $400,000 a month within just a little bit of time. So I guess the biggest takeaway from that is always forgive, even whenever you don't want to, you know, because that from that forgiveness started my entire career. And that's why I've been able to spend almost a hundred million dollars on Facebook now. Yeah. In my so how did you deal with all of the loss though? I mean, what do you do now? How, how have you been able to overcome that and heal from a lot of that loss that you've experienced? Well, for me, uh, my son actually helped a lot with that, you know, because being his father has been the greatest blessing of my entire life. Also, just forgiving everybody in the story, forgiving my dad, forgiving my stepmom, forgiving all these people, because my dad's actually married to that woman now. Both my mom and my dad have been remarried for like 26 years. Just forgiving them, recreating that relationship and just you know, understanding that we're all human at the end of the day, that we all make mistakes, that we all do the best that we possibly can. And that, you know, through the process, if we can forgive, massive, massive things can begin to take place and blossom and bloom. That's really the main thing that just kind of got me through it all is just forgiving all those people. And now at this time in my life, I don't, I don't hold grudges you know, if I do have a problem with somebody, I try to take care of it quickly. I forgive very, very quickly. You know, that, that's really, I guess, all I can say. So like, and that's, a, I mean, that's a powerful, powerful statement there to be able to say that, yeah, it's forgiveness, but uh, it's not an easy thing to do. I mean, people, especially when you've been harmed and you felt that loss and you felt the pain. So what would you say, maybe it is just the fact of forgiveness, but I guess maybe it's a multi-question. One, what would be the one thing you would hope people would walk away from listening to your story? What is the one lesson? And it might be forgiveness. But then the second thing is is just, if somebody really wanted to forgive, but didn't know how, where would they start? Yeah, I would say forgiveness, you know, is, is the biggest takeaway for me. Because if you, the thing with forgiveness is it's not for them, it's for you, right? Because when it comes down to forgiveness, It's not about them feeling better about what they did to you. You don't even have to tell them that they, that you actually forgive them. You just have to forgive them. Right. Because ultimately we're all forgiven as children of God of all of our most egregious things. Right. So if we're forgiven, then we should be able to pass that forgiveness on to others. But when you're holding on to unforgiveness, you can't, you can't have anything, you know, fall into your hands. And so you're constantly just grasping at all of this unforgiveness and it just eats away at you like a cancer. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, it's super, super powerful. Is there any, any last words you want to add to everything or is that, that, that was it? That's the mic drop moment. I I'd say that's about it. Man. <laughs> <laughs> so if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, how would they do that? How, how would they reach out to you? You reach out to me on Facebook, Chase Winslow. I'm standing on the 52, uh, what is it? 52 story building in Miami. It was one of my trips. I really enjoyed. 
So nice. I'm not so, really easy to find. Yeah, Chase Winslow on on Facebook is probably the easiest way to reach out. Okay. But yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, again, thanks. And for those that are listening, man, th- this is a powerful story of forgiveness. I mean, there's a lot of loss. There's a lot of things that we have to deal with. And I'm sure that there's some that are listening. If this has touched you in any way, please, again, reach out to us and let us know that the impact that we've had for you, because both Chase and myself, we really want to hear your stories. We want to hear how we can be of help and we can be of service. So until next story, until the next time, man, keep writing your story, keep crafting that narrative, and we'll see you again. Thanks for listening to today's show. But before you go, let me ask you a question. How would you like to be the author of your story? Take the next step now at www.narrative.live and enter your details to connect with a community of others just like you that are tired of living under the false narrative. Finding your true story and writing your narrative, it will give you clarity, freedom of your day, and it just might change your life forever.